Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Our friend Steve Cotter is joining us today. So Steve, we'll turn it over to you if you wouldn't mind giving a little background on yourself, please. Thanks a lot, Dennis, Neil. Pleasure to be here. So I'm 51 years old. I've been involved in physical education formally starting when I was 12 years old. So that's been my only profession. I'm most associated with kettlebell training, and I've done a lot to promote kettlebells around the world. I've, I've taught kettlebells in 70 countries, first starting in starting teaching internationally back in 2006. And I was bringing kettlebells all around the world up until the, the great pandemic of 2019 <laughs> put a cessation to the global travel. <laughs> and subsequently, I transitioned to do my instruction over Zoom based in San Diego, California. I'm a, a lifelong martial artist. My purpose is really to help move humanity forward via physical education. And, you know, physical education incorporates mind, body, and breathing together. Mm -hmm. So uh, tools of choice, kettlebells, body weight, uh, martial art movements, and principles. But really not exclusively that. I'm interested in any kind of movement that helps people perform better, move with less pain, to be happier, healthier, more productive. Yeah, so... You know, my bio is, it's pretty extensive. I've, I've had the opportunity mm -hmm. to work with a lot of fitness professionals, professional athletes, coaches, instructors, just individuals looking to better themselves. <sighs> and, and I love uh, sharing, love sharing my, uh, my passion and my experience. What was it about the kettlebell that, you know, kind of brought you down that path? I was one of the first adapters when the kettlebell market was first created uh, mm -hmm. back in, you know, 2001. Obviously, kettlebells, those that know the history, kettlebells have been around for a couple of hundred years, mm -hmm. dating back to Tsarist Russia, 1700s. But it was pretty much exclusive to the Russia and Soviet Union. Uh, most of most people around the world had no, no clue what a kettlebell was, myself included. And then what we now identify as the kettlebell, really that modern, we could say the modern period really started with 2001 when Pavel Satsuli released his book. Russian kettlebell challenge. And mm -hmm. so when that came out back in, I guess, 2001, I was a subscriber to the Vitalix catalog by Dragondor, who was the producer and Pavel's partner at that time for his RKC program. I saw these kettlebells in the catalog. It was a quarterly catalog I would get in the mail. And at that time, it was really a martial art catalog. So I was, mm -hmm. you know, a subscriber. I had bought a couple of DVDs over the years on mostly Tai Chi videos. And I started seeing these ads about the, the Russian kettlebell and it caught my eye. At that time, I was about 31 years old. So this is back in 2001. And up until about 28 years old, I was you know, practicing Chinese martial arts basically all day, every day. It was my, my first profession. I started teaching when I was 15 years old. Wow. So I had a really extensive background in, in martial arts and teaching martial arts and practicing martial arts. And then I, I went to university later in life. I started university when I was 27, studying kinesiology at San Diego State University, which is my hometown. And I went from basically a young kid training all day, every day to a full-time student taking any, anywhere from like 16 to 22 units per semester. Wow. Uh, I had my, my first child, first of three children. So my oldest daughter, she's, she's 22 now. And so I went from, you know, training all the time to not training a lot at all and, and just being a, a student and a young parent. 
And I noticed after a couple of years of university that my conditioning was was slacking. You know, it wasn't you know, I, I was used to being in peak condition and then I went to carrying a backpack. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I didn't like that. I didn't like how my body was changing in a negative direction. So I was giving a lot of thought about, man, I, I want to get back to high level fitness. And I never really resonated with the with the gym. Now, for those of you that don't know, or you know, younger audience, at that time, what we called fitness was very different than what we have now. You know, so what we call functional fitness and unconventional fitness really didn't exist. The kettlebells didn't exist. The mace bells, stick mobility, mm-hmm. you know, none of these tools existed at that time. So it was pretty much, you know, functional fitness was kind of early, starting in the nineties. But at that time what they called functional fitness was like medicine balls and speed ladders, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, there wasn't any unconventional. And prior to that, you know, the the main training was basically bodybuilding. You'd go to the gym and you'd, you know, you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger's book Mm -hmm. or the muscle media 2000 magazine, and you'd, you'd follow the workouts. And so I did that for several years in my, you know, my twenties, but I never felt that it directly translated to the martial art. I didn't feel there was really any skill development. I'd get bigger and stronger, you know, more defined, but there was no, there was no real carryover into the skill development component, Mm -hmm. which was my main interest as a martial artist. And so when I saw these, these catalog for the kettlebell, it's the saying when the student is ready, the teacher appears, you know, so this kettlebell appeared into my life. And something about it spoke to me. I saw that it was similar to Olympic lifting in the sense that it was a dynamic full body, Mm -hmm. you know, standing upright on your feet. And that made a lot of sense. And this was even before CrossFit existed. So -hmm. there was no real accessibility for Olympic lifting. There was a U.S. national coach, Mike Bergner, but he was about an hour and a half north of me where where his gym was. So it wasn't something I could practically train. I was interested in Olympic lifting, but I had no access to it. And so the kettlebell sort of entered at that point. And I en- ended up just purchasing a couple kettlebells through this Dragon Door website. I got the first, at that time, it wasn't even a DVD. It was a VHS. And I just followed <laughs> along, you know, the, the VHS. And I, I studied and I learned the movements. And I learned pretty quickly at that time because, you know, again, I had a very extensive background in martial arts, almost 20 years of training at that point, and or, or, or actually more than 20 years. And, you know, so I was able to learn the moves. I had a foundation in the, in the flexibility and the conditioning component. And then I decided, you know, I was going on the website, on the internet. And at that time, internet forums were very popular, discussion mm-hmm. forums. And so Dragon Door had quite an active forum. So I was going on there looking around. And I was like, oh, this Pavel guy is interesting. I, Something told me I, I need to connect with this guy. So I ended up going out to St. Paul, Minnesota in April 2003, and I the, the RKC course. And immediately, Pavel and I connected. He made notice of, of my, you know, my background, my movement capacity. And when the course was finished, he asked me if I would be interested in coming back the next course, which is two months later, and serve as one of his assistant instructors. And I did so. And then from there, he asked me to be one of his uh, senior instructors. We had a group of like six or seven uh, senior instructors who were really, we were the OGs of Kettlebell. You know, it's Pavel, myself, Mm -hmm. Steve Maxwell, Mike Baller, Brett Jones, say Rob Lawrence, Nate Morrison, Andrew Duquesne, Jeff Martone. So it was the eight of us were, and Pavel were like the senior instructors. And I was in RKC for about three years. You know, and then uh, around that time, so we're talking like 2006, we started really 
or a little before, probably 2004, 2005, myself and a small group of others in this new kettlebell community, we started hearing stories about these Russian athletes that could do amazing things with the kettlebell, but there was no access to that. Mm -hmm. I was myself and seven others. We created the first ever U.S. national team, and we traveled to Moscow in 2005, and we competed in the kettlebell world championships there. Oh. And that was a real eye-opener because I saw the highest level of, of kettlebell sport and kettlebell practice at that time. And it was like, wow, man, you know, I was at this point, I, I had created my first DVD. My first DVD was called Full Contact Kettlebells, mm-hmm. where I combined kettlebell training with martial art training. And I set up a website, you know, a, a homepage and a shopping cart. I basically just mimicked what I saw some other people Uh, Mm -hmm. kind of the early pioneers of, you know, what at that time was the beginning of internet commerce meets fitness. Mm -hmm. So you had, you know, the OGs at that time was like Matt Fury. Uh, Matt Fury had a book called Combat Conditioning, which was a very big selling book. You had Pavel, you had Scott Sonnen, and maybe one or two others that were, you know, basically making business on the internet with fitness Mm -hmm. in very non-conventional or at that time, non-traditional manners. So I saw what they were doing. I was like, I need to do something like that. So I, you know, I created a DVD. I set up the website. I was getting orders and for the DVD. People started writing me. So I love your DVD. I want to have you out here and, and do a seminar. You know, so I was traveling around the U.S. starting in 2004. Seminars in Boston and New York and Florida and different places. And, you know, that kept growing word of mouth. I would get invited more to more and more. And then uh, 2005, I created a DVD called the Encyclopedia of Kettlebell Training, which was and still is, even though DVDs really don't exist anymore, or they're not, we don't see people making DVDs anymore. At that time, DVDs were quite popular. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was the most extensive DVD that had ever been created with kettlebells. And it was literally nine hours, 200 different exercises on six DVDs and you know, so that created a global market for me. The producer I was working with at that time, which is a company called Shihan, they were quite active on YouTube and YouTube was quite new also at this time. So they were putting clips of, you know, these DVDs on YouTube. And then I was getting people contact me, say, Hey, I love your DVDs, you know, come to, come to Barcelona, come to London. And so I just started, you know, getting on airplanes and doing seminars in these different cities. And it just kind of, it just kind of grew from there. But, you know, now 20 years later, I'm still involved with kettlebells and it's evolved, you know, extensively for me in terms of how I approach it, how I teach it, how I practice. Like everybody, I continue to age as we all do Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the body undergoes changes and our priorities change. And so when I was starting out in the game in my early thirties, it was about, okay, let's see the heaviest kettlebell I could pick up. Let me get the attention of the strong man and the power lifters mm-hmm. and, you know, the big dogs. And I want to win their respect. And I was able to do that. And then from there, as I transitioned into running seminars, it was more the audience was the fitness professional, you know, the personal trainers and, I, and you know, to some degree, the therapists. And that was my main audience for a long time. It really still is, you know, and then in later years, it was more about, okay, well, the 40 plus crowd, right? I'm 51 mm-hmm. now, but, you know. You get into your 40s and you start realizing well, your body might take a little longer to recover and you can't jump quite as high as you could 10 years ago and these types mm. of things. So this idea of loaded mobility where we can load the skeleton in, in a neutral fashion where 
you know, the wrist can be straight and the load can be vertically aligned over your center of mass, over your base of support. The kettlebell is an incredible tool for that. And now we start changing base, raising the base, lowering the base, you know, rotation and so on. You know, I stay with the kettlebell because I still use the kettlebell. <laughs> Summarizing, you know, I started as a martial art and I came back to the martial arts again. About three and a half years ago, I got involved with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with mm-hmm. some of the best to ever do it. Salo and Shanji Gabeto, two brothers who are, you know, Jiu-Jitsu Hall of Famers, both many-time world champions. Uh, so I got involved, my son and I training Jiu-Jitsu. And that kind of brought me full circle because I was a martial artist starting and I moved away from martial arts. I got into fitness mm-hmm. and I didn't realize it at the time until I came back to the martial arts that all those years I was still teaching martial arts, but the kettlebell sort of, the kettlebell was an opportunity for me to create my own method, my own style, Mm -hmm. if you will, and different adaptations in terms of how I'm approaching the kettlebell, what the priorities are, who the audience is, and so on. You know, I still use it on a regular basis. I'm still teaching. I'm still running a lot of certification courses and weekly classes and seminars. It just remains my favorite handheld tool to this day. Well, I know when I first came across you, Neil had shown me who you were. I was super impressed with your movement quality and your strength combination. I thought that was a great blend together. Thank you. And I know, you know, you guys both really appreciate that. And, and, you know, the attention to the quality of movement, as you said, Mm -hmm. and not just movement for movement's sake. And, you know, like myself, Dennis, you know, you're a lifetime athlete. Neil's a little bit younger, but I think you and I are in a similar age range. You been a hockey hockey player for a long time and we understand that you know as the body ages the mind still has the same thought process as the 20 year old athlete well, i can do this and i can do that yeah. but the body doesn't necessarily want to respond as quickly and so that can be you know a very difficult transition for a lot of athletes who want to still drive but the body wants to reject the <laughs> volume <laughs> And so we have to learn to be smarter as we get older. We have to learn to, to create a balance. Um, I'm very, very grateful that my, you know, initiation into movement was really through the martial arts rather than through team sports. Because although it's getting much better nowadays, you know, back in the 80s, there wasn't a lot of education in terms of team sports and strength conditioning in terms of a holistic approach. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, get faster, get stronger, maybe not a lot of attention to mobility or a lot of attention to recuperation. And, you know, now we know more. So I'm really grateful that this idea of movement quality was instilled within me as a, you know, as a young boy, just becoming a teenager. And, you know, that's something I advocate. It's always quality first and then quantity on top of quality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the end result is we can continue to do everything that we've always done as we age and you may maybe need to slow down in some regards or go a little bit lighter or decrease the volume but you can still do everything you know my viewpoint that i promote is you're not going to be doing something when you're in your 50s 60s and beyond you don't need to be doing it when you're in your 20s either because it makes no sense to to drive your body to the point where you get injured and now 
10 or 20 years later, your movements are inhibited or restricted based on your training methods. That's a major mistake that we see with a lot of athletes where, you know, certain sports, it's almost inevitable. You're looking at a sport like, you know, American football classically or, or you know, combat sports. If you stay in that for too long, you're going to take the type of impact damage where your body is being sacrificed for the pursuit mm-hmm. of athletic glory. But that's, I'd say, more the exception than the rule. Most sports, you don't have that level of impact where if you're getting injured, it's probably something in how you're approaching the training, either something you're lacking or something you're doing too much of that needs to be removed from your program. And from my experience, you know, I've, I'm able to maintain everything that I've, that I've always done, just with the exception that I have to be more aware and more alert to my body. You can't just pop out of bed and go into a full sprint necessarily. You have to maybe allow for some for some warm up and so on. <laughs> you know, there's universal qualities that we all can benefit from that we become aware of sometimes when it's almost too late or when we have no choice. And ideally, we want to raise the younger generations with these principles in place from the very beginning. For example, the understanding the importance of breathing mm-hmm. and the importance of uh, visualization and the, the importance of relaxation and recuperation and mobility and flexibility and not just power and strength development. Although those are necessities for athletic development, we need to balance that. And, you know, you guys are aware of this and I'm aware of this, but if if you look at any sport, including team sports, the athletes that are associated with the longevity that have a very long career where they're able to play at a high level into their late thirties and sometimes into their forties, in every case, they will have developed at some point in their athletic career, they would have developed a dedicated flexibility training because if they don't, then again, they're going to be in their late thirties, now their body's broken down and they cannot perform. You know, and this happens to all of us. We need to be aware of this process. You know, for example, Michael Jordan, he's not Michael Jordan anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger is not Arnold. If you take the best that ever did it, there's a point in their lifespan where they're not able to sustain that level. And so they have to retire, not because they lose desire, but because I can't jump as high as I could 10 years ago or five years ago. So Mm -hmm. I feel that the profession that we're in, it's a, it's a very exciting field of study and it's, it's an exciting space to be in because we're having a greater impact in society as a whole. Because more people are becoming aware of the significance of a, I like to say mind, body and breath, you know, mm-hmm. this holy trinity. And, you know, the adage is mind, body and spirit. But again, when you talk about spirit, well, that's pretty uh, curious. It can be defined <laughs> very many different ways depending mm-hmm. on who's saying it what language and what their beliefs is but when we say mind body and breath everyone can understand exactly what we're referring to you know and so this connectivity between your movement your focus and the, the cooperation the coordination of the breathing is really the key factor in everything that i'm doing what i teach what i practice and it's you know has direct implications into our performance both from a athletic point of view but also as a well-being if we're talking about stress management and dealing with conflicts and and health and all these important factors that that we need to to live a healthy life to live a good life and for me that's what it's about for a very long time you know fitness for me has been about something more when i got into it, it was about fitness you know classical fitness like okay get stronger get faster get 
you know, more muscular, but I've come to grow into the idea that fitness is a part of something bigger, which we can call health. And the reason I, I view it this way is because someone can be fit and not healthy, depending on how, how we're defining fitness, you know, and mm-hmm. again, different eras and different times. It wasn't that long ago where fitness and, and even to large part nowadays, fitness is often associated with an aesthetic. Yes. Oh, that person's mm-hmm. fit because they have a six pack, for example. Yep. Or a step beyond that, fitness can be associated also with performance. Like that person's a great athlete, so they're very fit. And while that's true in both cases, it's not enough by itself because the same person can be very fit, but not necessarily be healthy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. You know, uh, perhaps mentally, their their mind, you know, they're depressed and no one knows it, or they, you know, have a chaotic life or they have a horrible relationship or a horrible business or all of these other important factors, you know, and so fitness is a part of something bigger, which we call health. Conversely, we need to be fit to to have optimal health. We mm-hmm. can't be our optimal health if we're unfit or deconditioned. So it's a part of something, but it's not the whole thing. And then health, I say, is part of something bigger, which we can call well-being or wellness. So now, you know, I'm fit and my fitness allows me to have a holistic, healthy lifestyle. But now that's just dealing with the physical self. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, there's the other aspects of our life. So we have our emotional well-being, our mental, you know, the spokes on the wheel, if you will, oh, you know, and, and whatever those spokes, it can be different for every person. But I would call that our values, you know, so our family, our relationships, our professional life, our community life our spiritual or belief system, as well as our physical performance and and health. And, you know, so ideally, we want to have a system in place where we're able to address all these important values and improve in all of these important things. Because in my opinion, at least for myself, not to judge others, but for myself, it's not a life well lived if you're, you know, strong and, and fit and you're making money, but you're arguing with your wife or your significant other and have a horrible relationship there, or your kids won't talk to you, or maybe you have great in these things, but you're struggling to figure out how you're going to pay rent this month. You know, and again, we all have different strengths and weaknesses, but the, the greater goal is let's have a balance in our life. And I view physical education as a, as a key and actually the centerpiece of a life well lived. Because conversely, if we have all these other things, you know, maybe I'm Warren Buffett and I have all the money I could ever want and I have all these things, but I have poor health. Mm-hmm. Well, now your wealth doesn't buy you health. Very so, true. you know, the physical education, I consider the foundation and it's through the physical education that we develop the mental faculties, which, you know, we can talk about what those things are. But for me, the father of all, all the mental faculties is discipline. And that's mm-hmm. not discipline from a military point of view or, or hierarchical point of view. It's like, oh, do what I tell you. Yes, sir. That's one form of discipline. But when I'm speaking about discipline, I'm speaking about self-discipline, where mm-hmm. we have the ability to clarify our thoughts and breathe and take a moment to decide proper action rather than being reactionary from an emotional point of view where we become slaves to our emotions. 
where it's like you just react. The guy cuts you off in the road and you're like, fucker, and you, you, know, you want to fight the guy or, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, because in those moments we lose control. Those mm-hmm. are things when we can make mistakes that we can never recover, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, we're all human. We make mistakes. But what I'm saying is through the physical education, I've been able to develop my own self-discipline because we know that when we're training, it requires a mental involvement where we need to focus on what we're doing and we need to be aware of how is the breath behaving. And we can see this a lot with the breathing where a lot of times even movement acquisition, learning new skills, when a person has a difficulty learning a new skill, oftentimes we are not breathing properly in those Mm -hmm. moments Mm -hmm. where we're thinking, but maybe we're holding our breath and not even be aware of that. And the body becomes rigid and almost paralyzed for that split moment. And, you know, you you can find this in martial art practice, especially the, I guess, traditional martial arts where where they don't get a lot of real-time combat interaction, where it's like a controlled environment. Maybe this black belt, you know, that's been doing Kung Fu and, you know, they can beat everyone that they spar, but then they get in a street fight for the first time and they just freeze, right? And they can't use any of their skills because of the panic. This idea of staying calm under stress, staying calm under pressure and circling back to the kettlebell of all the great benefits that kettlebell training can offer, the obvious things, you know, the the power, endurance, cardiovascular fitness, the the mobility, all of these different physical attributes that we can develop. I believe the greatest attribute is the, the mental conditioning, because if you're really going deep into the kettlebell, you have to learn about using time. It's not just reps. It's not, that's one way of training and we can do that. And we do that at times where, okay, you're going to do sets of five, you're going to do sets of 10, but to have the complete education of kettlebell, you also have to understand the use of time where you're working for a period of time. And it can be any period of time. It can be a short period of time, like one to three minutes. It can be a moderate period of time, five to 10 minutes without stopping, or it can be longer. Can be 30 minutes or an hour without stopping, without putting the kettlebell down. So you're under load, and that load is a form of pressure, especially when you're doing doubles and you have you know two reasonably yeah. heavy or heavy kettlebells, and you're have you're already tired because it's been several minutes, and now your heart rate's going and your breathing's going, and your mind gets active, like, oh my god, this hurts, this sucks. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna put these down, and you choose to push through that. Somewhere in that process, you're finding the calm within the storm where the, the mental component takes over and your body is able to perform beyond its physiological capacity because you have the, the mental clarity and the mental focus to stay calm and to stay in control of yourself. And it's not just kettlebells. Any type of physical training will give you the same benefit if you're really taking it to that level. You hear about ultra runners. You know, my girlfriend runs, she's training for a hundred kilometer race. Now to me, a lot of people have consider me pretty extreme in some of the things I do. But for me, she's way more extreme. I I would never conceive of running a hundred (laughs) kilometers without stopping. You know, for, (laughs) for, for those of us who are Americans, that's about 84 miles. (laughs) Okay. So, So it's more than three marathons back to back to back. You know, so I mean, that type of mental where it's like your body broke down probably after <laughs> the first marathon. Now you still got two more 
<laughs> kettlebells is one example, but any type of physical activity that requires extreme commitment on the person's behalf is going to require that switch where you have to make a decision about, okay, I'm either going to stay with this and stay calm and, and stay with my breathing, or I'm going to let the pressure just overwhelm me and smash me. Yeah. With like rock climbing, man, if, if you freak out, you know, oh. you can't freeze up there. <laughs> it doesn't work. But right. you know, the moment you can, you can let that breath go, then all of a sudden that form pump kind of, it goes away a little bit and then you can keep going. Right. And you know, like something like that, I don't want to say the risk to reward ratio because that's probably not the right way to say it because for a rock climber, the reward is worth the risk. But from mm -hmm. the observer, the observer is going to say, well, the risk to reward ratio is <laughs> skewed. Yeah. You, know, um, <laughs> you don't really think that way unless you're in it. But, you know, obviously you're willing to take a risk, but the risk is very high because one mistake can result in immediate death, <laughs> you know, in a sense. So, but. Yeah, any, any type of extreme activity like that, it requires this continuity and this cohesive relationship between your mental and your physical. And, you know, this is something I think young athletes ought to be educated about because, you know, naturally we have a, a propensity to be very pliable and very adaptable when we're very young, where the body can recover really quickly. It can warm up immediately. In fact, it's already warm. You don't even need to warm up because your body's still flexible you're still in the anabolic phase of life and then they get older then they start being like oh my god you know now how am i going to feel whereas if we have this education at the beginning we can save ourselves a lot of unnecessary wear and tear and you know punishment with you getting into martial arts at a young age there's a vastly different perspective on what was taught to you than westernized sports programs either even individual or team sports programs, there's vastly different philosophies that are taught between those things. Yes, that's, that's true. And now, 30 plus years later, there's a lot more, you know, this idea of globalization, that can mean different things. We're not talking about the political or the economic aspect of it right now, but just in terms of the information component, where the internet and, and, and so on, globalization allows us to have access to different cultures. And so mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to understand. You know, we have access much easier now to say Eastern traditional methods, mm -hmm. whereas 20 and more years ago, it was much harder to find. It wasn't as accessible, but you're right. You know, and there, there's pros and cons to both. And I'm a big believer that rather than comparing, you know, oh, my nation is greater than your nation or my custom or my culture is greater than your culture. Every culture has strengths and weaknesses, just like every person has strengths and weaknesses. And my philosophy is let's, let's understand what are the best that each has to offer and what can we borrow of the good, mm -hmm. you know, and add to our own to be better. Because it's the relentless pursuit of better. And, and for me, I don't care where it comes from. I just care about getting better. You know, mm -hmm. there's no dogma in the sense, oh, I've been doing it this way, so I'm going to keep doing it this way. Well, if you show me a better way, I'm going to adapt that way. I'm going to yeah. take an interest and I'm going to be interested in, well, how do they do that, that skill so effortlessly or, or so effectively? And how can I learn that? And then I'll study it. And if I can adapt it, I'll start doing it that way. And then with time, I'll become adept at it. And then I'll start integrating that into how I teach. But, you know, 
in short, the, the basic difference is the Western really focused a lot on the physiology, you know, so power development and strength and let's get bigger and let's get stronger and let's jump higher. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Eastern has a lot of interest in the emotional and the mental component. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a major comparison there, as well as tradition. You know, in America, we don't really have, I don't want to say, I don't want this to come out the wrong way. I say that we don't really have much of a culture at all, but I don't say that in negative. It's just to say that we're 200, we're very more young. than 200 years old. Yeah. I mean, you know, most of the culture we have, the American culture stuff, most of that stuff is not, you know, McDonald's and Coca-Cola are American institutions, <laughs> right? So that's not the best of what we have to offer. But where Americans are great is we are tremendous at innovation. We are tremendous at cooperation. We're tremendous at, hey, you know, Dennis, you have this skill set. Neil, you have this skill set. Steve, you have this skill set. We can complement each other and we can mm-hmm. combine forces and now we can make it greater than what we would be able to do as three individuals, mm-hmm. you know, whereas the Chinese it's like, why master, why am I doing it that way? Well, because we've been doing it that way for 4,000 years. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you don't question it. And, and whereas in America, it's like, why, why? Yeah, I want to know why. So it's, it's finding that balance. And interestingly enough, the Russian system, I think is a nice balance between the two because they're not West. They're not East. They're kind of in the middle. And from what I've seen, the Russian, especially the sports system that I'm more familiar with, or the Soviet sports system, sports science, they have a balance of sort of practical and traditional, mm-hmm. where at the end of the day, they care about what works. Yes. But they also give attention to, you know, the uh, energetic and not just the physical, the outer. The Soviet system really has a lot to offer in terms of sports conditioning and most of the leaders, you know, in America that are the experts in strength conditioning, somewhere in their education that comes from the Soviet sports system, like most of the best stuff, kettlebells and, and other things, it's coming from that culture. You know, and again, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Every once in a while we have innovations, but those innovations are based on tools or techniques that were already present, but it's just a different way of looking at it. Case in point, Landmine University, which we were just speaking about before we, we, we went live here. You know, Landmine University is kind of an example of a great innovation mm-hmm. where people have been using Landmine for a long time, but they haven't necessarily been using it in that way. They've been moving yes. the bar instead of rotating the bar. Mm-hmm. So yep. that's a great example of an existing tool, but applying a new concept to how we're utilizing the tool and the end result being. Here's another tool in the toolbox that, you know, can make the athlete potentially better, you know, Mm -hmm. certainly better if if they apply it. Yeah, I thought that was one of the best things about it was just looking at just that perspective of where are we driving the movement from, right? Is it a spinal engine drive versus an extremity driven drive? And I think that was a very eye-opening thing is understanding that and thinking about most of what we consider fitness in this country is really extremity-driven drive and getting that spinal engine drive, vastly different feel. Yes. And, you know, this idea of core and, you know, core has been a, been a buzzword, at least for, you know, probably the last 20 or more years in terms of, you know, we're seeing it in the, in the literature core and, and, you know, most coaches and most trainers will We'll have this idea of like, you know, let's look at your core strength. 
However, even still, most of us are missing the idea that there's more than one core. There's the core that we are usually talking about is the muscular core, mm-hmm. but there's also the skeletal core, which is the, the skeleton itself. And, you know, make no bones about it. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> you know, the skeletal core is the foundation. You know, it's the bones that provide the structure. Mm-hmm which the muscular core can now be activated and, and we can utilize that for performance. So yes, this idea about the spinal engine, but you know, one of the things that I think is a, it's a danger or it's something that can be a limitation is a lot of time, these concepts they're, they're pushed aside. You know, the, the spinal engine has been around for uh, 40 yeah. or more years, mm-hmm. but it was discounted by the scientific community because maybe the study itself was not designed perfectly in a way that and so we have a tendency to throw the baby out with bath, bath water yep. if you will and yep. but it's really david weck and weck method who was really instrumental in the formation of landmine mm-hmm. where alex canellis took yep. the weck method and his concept of the coiling core which is based on the the research of spinal engine and thomas myers with his landmark book you know the the anatomy tr- trains mm-hmm. anatomy cha- anatomy train you know, that was a, a instrumental book in getting people to start paying attention to the fascial system. Whereas what I would say is David's Im- impact is he kind of, Thomas, uh, Dr. Myers laid out sort of the anatomical and physiological explanation about the fascia, why it's important. And David took that and he actually created exercises to where we can actually start to train, utilize the fascial system mm-hmm. uh, in this you know, these spiral dynamics. And then Alex with the landmine said, let's take this, these spiral so, dynamics and let's apply it to heavy lifting mm-hmm. with the landmine. You know, because again, athletes, unless you're an Olympic lifter as your sport, you don't need to be getting strong up and down. You need to be getting strong forward because mm-hmm. the field of play is forward. If you're a martial artist, you're a ball player, you know, you need to, you need to drive force forward in the field of play, not up and down. Yep. And so the transfer is more direct than, of course, we know if an athlete gets stronger, you know, lifting a barbell, there's going to be carryover. But if you can learn to drive it forward instead of up, it's going to be a greater carryover, a more direct carryover. So it's really exciting time to, to be in our in our field where there's so many innovations happening now and there's so much more understanding and you know, the technology allows that, you know, David Weck is, he, he really developed this coiling core because he was a geek at studying the best athletes in the world, the sprinters, you know, the Barry Sanders, the Deion Sanders, the mm-hmm. Lawrence Taylors, the great athletes, male or female, you know, regardless of the sport and, and watching it frame by frame, slow motion and able to pick up things that we miss with the naked eye because we're seeing it at full speed and we're seeing it from the front. We're not seeing these spirals, but when you can slow it down enough, you see these spirals. And so this idea about brace your core, you know, super stiff, anti-rotation, while I'm not going to say it's wrong, what I will say is it has its appropriate application, but it's not Mm -hmm. for all things. In -hmm. some cases, it may be appropriate in a rehabilitative context. It's not necessarily what's really going on in action if you look at an athlete in play. And so, you know, I think five or 10 years from now, 
things are going to be completely different than how these of how these ideas are taught because we're going to we're coming into an age now where we understand more we're seeing more and it's important that the academics who represent culturally academics represent the pinnacle of society where you know it's we talk about growth science in, in, in our field <laughs> Right. But the idea of like science, oh, but the science says we're all fans of science. I'm a fan of science, yeah. but the disconnect is what science actually is, is not what is usually referred to as science. Right? Because mm-hmm. in many cases, what's called science is actually theory, mm-hmm. because the true science never changes. It's always true. Right. Like, and so that's why mathematics is called the true science or the, or the hard science, because mathematics never changes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't change based on the weather or based on how I feel about it or, you know, my opinion. That's irrelevant to the truth of what it is. Okay. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line, and that's always going to be the case. And nothing's going to come along to change that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the things that we say, oh, that's science. And, you know, just as a way to shut someone down, like, let's not have this conversation because I feel uncomfortable that you're challenging my position, my tenure. Mm-hmm. You know, and I want to I want to protect my reputation and I don't want to entertain any idea that might suggest that maybe I'm missing something or, or heaven forbids I'm wrong about something. And that's a limitation. That's a weakness because we win by losing <laughs> and we win by failure. And so we have to be receptive to the possibility of learning and we have to be flexible enough, in my opinion, to be able to integrate new findings. Mm-hmm. When those findings have proven to be superior or have in some way added to the existing body of information. In some respects, it's the people in the field are ahead of the academics because the academics are normally teaching what's been taught up to this point, And it takes a long time. And in sports, I, I think that the greatest example, at least in, in our lifetimes or, you know, in modern, it's the Fosbury Club. Club, yeah. You know, and there's there's maybe other examples, but the Fosbury flop, every high jumper in the world uses the Fosbury flop. And Dick Fosbury, 1968 Olympics, Mexico Mm -hmm. City, he was the guy they called the Fosbury flop because prior to him, everyone was doing the Western roll. They were approaching the bar forward and doing like a scissor kick. And then Fosbury comes and he's able to jump higher than everybody by running and going backwards because he was able to get his center of mass higher than the bar. Mm -hmm. And even still, it took eight years before that was implemented because in 1972, the gold medal winner, that was the Munich Olympics, he won using the Western rule. So it Mm -hmm. wasn't until the 76 Olympics, eight years later, that now ever since then, every jumper uses the Fosbury Club. In fact, you can't be competitive without it. Yeah, You know, so that's a classic example of something. Oh, no. But at that time, when Fosbury came and, and showed this, all the coaches were like, no, no, that's wrong. That doesn't work. Yeah. This way, because they're too much committed to their way of doing things. And, you know, I really think that's a weakness and, it, you know, it's ego and it's insecurity. And we have to be willing to be wrong. And in that, we're able to actually move things forward. And we're able to grow as individuals. And we're able to grow collectively because it's, it's about better. It's about getting better. It's not about who says it or, or you know, where it's coming from. It's about mm-hmm. the, the end results. You know, and, and I think that we're seeing that similar with this idea about the core activation where the quote-unquote experts say, oh, no, the core doesn't generate power. It only, trend, you know, it only transmits power. 
and its ground reactor force. And, you know, David Weck and others and Alex, you know, in, in the ground reactor or in landmine, you know, and others that are looking at this are saying, wait, we can generate force through the core, mm-hmm. through rotational, where we have the axis spinning. And it makes sense once you understand it, because it's like the center of mass is moving forward and the body's doing this like the car, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's rotating to make us go forward. So it's exciting to be at an era where we're seeing these drastic changes that's going to change the game for everybody. Yeah, I think it's been, it's between the introduction of Fascia through Thomas Myers, seeing the spinal engine come to fruition, seeing what David's doing and other educators out there. We are at a really good point here where we're starting to hopefully see a big transition. And I think what's interesting is seeing since the advent of the quote-unquote strength and conditioning coach here in the United States, if injury if injuries actually skyrocketed when it should actually be going the opposite direction in a logical sense, right? So right. is there something that we're missing out on? And, and unfortunately, Neil and I were talking about it right before you jumped on was how many times do we see the two excuses that we see, arguments that we see, are with this tradition, this is the way we've always done it. So this the way you're talking about just doesn't it's it's too new, it's too different. And then the other excuse we always see is that's stupid. We always see that uh, so many times, and you're like, Yeah, you stated that, but you have given no evidence to why you think this. So therefore, you've completely lost your argument. But those are the two common things that we see with anything new that's introduced. Yeah, you know, and that, that's another reason why I expect you guys, you know, whereas you're a leader in the fitness space and conditioning space, but yet you're totally willing to put on the student cap as you did this weekend and took that course, you know, and that's the same spirit that I'm coming from where you just, you're just trying to get better and learn more and offer more value to your students and your customers. And you can't always be the expert. You can yeah, be the yeah, expert yeah. all the time, but but when it's time to kind of be a student and listen to someone that's bringing something new, you have the ability to do that, and that's that's really admirable. And I like to like to do the same thing. You know, when there's someone that's knowledgeable or great, it's okay if I don't have the floor. It's okay if I'm if I don't have the attention, and you know, I'm going to stay in the corner and just take notes and just observe, and then I'm going to practice and. And what you guys have done with the stick mobility is another example of of an innovation, which is here to study because you're seeing the importance and and probably you know Dennis you know we we talked a lot with, I guess it was three years ago when we all yeah, were in we, Germany at the Perform Better right yeah yep yep and you know you were talking about a lot of the injuries that you had playing hockey and that that's a rough sport impact sport. So some of it probably just comes out of necessity where you're like, man, I got to start figuring out how to develop flexibility because I'm walking around with pain. People have been stretching forever and people have been using sticks forever, but you are the guys are the ones that figured out how do we combine it together and with a material that isn't going to break, that has flexibility, but yet stable at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the audience, it's a perfect fit because most of the people, at least at first, they're not going to get on the ground and stretch. They're just not going to do it. So now you're given an opportunity to work on their flexibility, whereas before they weren't working on their flexibility at all, you know, and it crosses over because athletic performance, but also rehabilitation and just lifestyle where it's just about feeling better. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and I'm doing the same with the kettlebell. It, you know, the greater audience is the people that have pain. Mm-hmm. It's not even the athletes because yes, mm-hmm. athlete trainers and people that want to get in shape. That's a huge audience athletes. That's a huge audience, but people that would love to reduce and or eliminate pain. That's a massive audience because that's sooner or later, pretty much everyone. If you mm-hmm. live long enough, you're going to eventually get to the point where your body is hurt or you're in pain or you're, and the truth is we don't have to exist like that. We don't have to walk around with pain. We don't have to walk around with movement restrictions. In some cases, maybe there may be certain injuries or things that are not, but even in that case, in most cases, we may not be able to eliminate, but we can definitely improve the situation. And that's where flexibility comes into play. I'm not going to talk too much about this because you guys are experts in this, but the understanding of what flexibility really means, stretching, okay, that's one sort of superficial, and yes, you're lengthening, but it's the ability to flex is what Mm -hmm. it actually is. And Mm -hmm. flexion is contraction. So Mm -hmm. flexibility is strength training. Exactly. And most athletes don't understand that they associate, especially in team sports, especially men, traditionally have associated flexibility with like, oh, that's for that's for girls, or that's for <laughs> you know, that's for yogis. That's yeah. not for you know, I'm, I'm a strong, tough guy. I lift heavy weight, I don't stretch, and to their detriment. And so now athletes are becoming more educated in the the stick mobility is just a great tool for that because you can just bring it onto the field and you can bring it with the whole team and we can get to it right away with minimal instruction, really. All right. You know, exactly. so that's a that's a tremendous innovation. That's a that's one of the keys to longevity as well. And that's that's one of my keys to longevity is that you know, my 50s, I'm still able to perform at a high level and do everything I've always done because I didn't injure myself when I was 20s and 30s doing stupid things, but because I've always given attention to mobility and flexibility and not just accepting, oh, my back hurts and oh, it's always going to be that way. I I don't accept that. I see it as, okay, there's something wrong. I need to figure out what is it and I need to figure out how can I improve the situation? And then you work at it, you learn. And before you know it, now your weakness becomes your strength. And that's a great point there that you make too. It's you use it as a learning tool, a learning moment. What's going on? Why is this being created? And how do I resolve it? Versus most people look at it as how do I just get rid of it? Yes. You know, again, I think as you mentioned, you know, earlier in the discussion, my exposure to the, you know, Eastern Mm-hmm. methods of, through the via the martial arts, the meditation, the qigong, the martial art. It also shaped my worldview because I started this training when I was 12 years old. So my, mm-hmm. I was already, you know, a kid, you're malleable, your opinions are still malleable, your, your belief systems are still malleable. And so I, I wasn't raised in a traditional thought process. And, and, and I'm grateful for that in that what we're speaking about is, is the idea like, oh, the West, we're not talking about medicine. We're talking about sort of the other side, which is the therapy, the therapy mm-hmm. and fitness component. It ties into the greater, I guess we would call the allied health would be mm-hmm. the term, mm-hmm. right? We're not doctors. You know, some of us might be therapists, trainers, 
We're not doctors, so we don't diagnose and treat, but we still need to understand the anatomy. We still need to understand mm -hmm. the physiology. And, you know, the Western model has by and large been, oh, you're in pain. Here's something to, to deal with right. the symptoms. Here's yeah. a pill so you don't feel the pain, or here's a procedure so that, you know, we fix it, but it's not going to the underlying where the traditional Eastern is looking for the causes. Yes. Let's try to figure out what are the causes and the symptoms are as a result of some root cause or causes. And if we can address the causes, the symptoms are going to go away through the process of uncovering the cause. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've used the same approach to, to fitness and with myself and how I teach. Instead of thinking of, oh, there's something wrong with you because mm -hmm. you have an injury, you have pain. There's nothing wrong with you. However, mm -hmm. and as you said, it's a learning opportunity. And so the way I conceptualize it is we are, you know, the human body, we're like supercomputers. We can describe it in different ways. You know, we can describe we're beings of light if you want to describe it that way. I'm not talking about spiritually necessarily, but if you look at the nervous system, you look at the spinal cord and, and how it irradiates, and then you look at like lightning, mm -hmm. right? The spinal cord and the nerves that come out, it's like an electrical circuit. And so, you know, the impulses for movement, it's like switch on, switch off, like an electrical circuit. We can see that as if the body is a supercomputer, like computers, we run programs. And so if you have a, a computer that you've had for a while, it, it's getting older, a lot of times you have programs running on that computer that you're not even aware the programs are running. It could be malware or it could be something you didn't load it, somebody else yeah. made it, but it's there yeah. and it's affecting the system and you're not even aware of it. Well, likewise, in our body, there's programs that are running and those programs are stored in the body. They're stored in the cellular structure. And a lot of times they manifest as what we would call pain, as what we would call discomfort. And, you know, not to get too far into that, this is very... uh quantum i guess you'd say but emotions okay it could be traumas that we've had people talk about childhood traumas right it could have been something that occurred or multiple things that occurred in childhood when you were still formulating or it mm -hmm. could be a physical thing but it's not always physical mm -hmm. and but but basically this what it is is it's information right our memories are basically just information that is being stored in the cell somewhere and so let's say, oh, my lower back hurts. Well, there's some program running and you're, it's being expressed as lower back pain, mm -hmm. but it may not be, maybe didn't injure your back. It could have been something else. It's just, it's just flowing and it just deposits in some area. And that's where you feel the pain. So the Western approach is like, oh, my shoulder hurts. So it's a shoulder injury. That may be true. It may be mechanical, but it may not be the shoulder. It could have been some other thing. And you're just feeling it in your shoulder, mm -hmm. you know? And so without getting too far out there, what I know, and I'm speaking from experience because I use this process with myself where I had chronic low, low back pain up until about six or seven years ago, there was a period of time. And, you know, at that time I was traveling the world. I was flying long haul, going to Asia back mm -hmm. and forth. And, you know, you guys know how it is. You're sitting on a plane for you know, 24 or more hours going across the world. And then your lower back is compressed. And now, you know, now I get off the plane, I got to go to a kettlebell seminar and swing kettlebells for eight hours yeah. for three days. And 
it's like the lower back's getting compressed. And I'm like, man, my lower back hurts. And, and I was thinking like, man, I got to do something because this isn't getting better. And I make my living through physical education and yeah. I'm, you know, very active and, you know, and I'm not going to get surgery because I don't believe in that. And I don't want to get surgery because I know if I get the surgery, it's never going to go mm-hmm. to hundred percent. And so I'm like, I got to do something. So I, I started studying yoga very seriously, just at home using different DVD programs. And I was really focusing a lot on yin yoga, which is the prolonged where you're holding mm-hmm. yeah, for, for long three minutes or more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after couple of years of doing that, I was able to completely eliminate all my back pain to where now my back feels great and stronger than ever. But in that is, you know, you have to look at not just the physical, the physiological, like, okay, there's pain there and I feel it. There's also emotional components. There's mental components where maybe you're holding on to some anger, some fear, some trauma, it could be anything, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, you're holding on to it so long and it's been with you so long that you're not even conscious, but the body knows. There's a famous book, you know, the body keeps the score. Yes. Yep. Right. So the good news is when we become aware of this, we can actually go into our own body and we can start uncovering these traumas and these programs that are running. And, and when, as we develop more awareness through the practice, we can actually down uh, unload, okay, or, mm-hmm. or offload, I guess, these mm-hmm. programs which are not serving us, which are, you know, causing us discomfort or causing us pain. So it's, uh, you know, there's so much in the way of, I guess we would say, mind-body or psychosomatic, where it's usually not just the physiological. There's something more going on when we're feeling pain and we have certain injuries. And, you know, the more we're willing to go into that and look into that and learn about that, the deeper we can go and the better opportunity we have to overcome, you know, and now that, again, that weakness now can become a strength through, well, the saying is knowledge is power, which is not exactly true. It's applied knowledge is power, right? So we have to get the knowledge and then we have to use the knowledge and do the work and then we get the results. Very true, very true. Well, I think, you know, we talk about the back pain. They show a lot of MRIs, right? Where someone's got discs that are destroyed. Someone has healthy discs, but the person with healthy discs, they're in pain while the other person's degenerative discs are, you know, they're completely fine, pain-free. So I think a lot of what you said, there's, you know, a lot of truth to that. Yeah, there's many examples. In also, you know, the, the classic example of like the, the 98-year-old guy who smokes cigarettes and drinks whiskey mm-hmm. and he's still Right. you know, able to work in his garden and do everything, you know, and then you have others that are eat perfectly and, you know, never smoke, never drink. And they, they die of some strange disease in their seventies or whatever. There's something to be said for the, for the spirit. There's something to be said for the, for the mindset and, you know, how we approach life and, and, you know, our, our belief systems involved with that is uh, very, very, very powerful. You have athletes who, you know, live off of like Big Macs and Coke, and they're still able to perform at the highest level. So it can't be, it's not one thing, right? Yeah, it's a lot of different things. Very true. Yeah. So you got any uh, upcoming classes or courses, or is everything going to still be online predominantly for you in the near future? Um, yeah, I'm doing, I'm still going to keep doing things online. It works really well. I did schedule my first live course, and it'll be uh, this October. I'm going to be doing a seminar out in Boston area. Okay. Two day, two day seminar. That's uh, the weekend of October twenty third, 
So anyone in Boston, it's going to be a combination of kettlebells, body weight, conditioning, mobility, breathing exercise, you know, so not super intense. The audience is is more sort of a a general audience. People just want to feel good, move better. It's not going to be a boot camp where I'm going to be trying to kill people, (laughs) at least not intentionally. (laughs) So it's not one of my normal (laughs) courses. It's going to be a, you know, a blend of sort of like therapeutic joint mobility, breathing exercise with some intense, you know, kettlebell type training. So that's going to be my first live course. And again, since my my last live course was, I guess, February of of 2019. No, February of 2020. I was in Asia. I was doing some courses out in uh, Singapore, Taiwan and Malaysia and COVID had hit over there, but it hadn't hit over here. I think it started here in March. Yeah. So I just come back from that. And then, you know, I was going to be doing some more. Then COVID came and everything shut down. And then shortly after that, I transitioned to Zoom. But I'm doing my mobility certification trainings, my kettlebell certification trainings on Zoom, usually doing uh, one a month for each. And then I'm doing weekly classes on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific time, I'm doing kettlebells and mobility every other week. You know, so tomorrow's going to be mobility, the next week, kettlebell, and I rotate like that. And that's open to everybody. And that's a one-hour class. So I have different different courses I do for different levels of commitment. If, you know, if someone's a trainer and wants to go really a deep dive or wants to be certified, uh, I, I run those courses. And people that just want to, you know, move with me and learn some new things and get a workout, those are the weekly classes for them. So I'm working with all levels and, you know, that, that works really well because I was always resistant for many years, you know, over the last decade, you know, I've had requests, oh, are you going to, you know, are you ever going to do an online certification? Are you ever going to do virtual? And I was never interested because I've always been a hands-on person. And then, you know, the COVID came and then it was like, okay, there's no other option and people still want this. So let's try the Zoom. And I find that it translates real well. And then now it's like I was in the habit of getting on planes and going around the world doing seminars. Now I've gotten real comfortable just <laughs> staying home and spending time with my girlfriend, spending okay. time with my family, being able to train jujitsu every night. You know, so it's I kind of love the luxury of not traveling now. You know, so I I will uh, I will still do some seminars, but I'm never going to go back to the forty weekends per year. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and um, now a little bit of balance and I'm going to pick and choose. And for the most part, I'll continue with the virtual teachings for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Social media, how can people get a hold of you? Follow your accounts? Uh, Yeah. Thanks for asking. So uh, Instagram, it's Steve Cotter, IKFF, Steve Cotter underscore IKFF. Facebook's same, Steve Cotter, IKFF, uh, YouTube channel. IKFF channel. So yeah, I'm, I'm most active on really most active on Instagram. I post my schedules there. I post content there, Perfect. post content on YouTube. So that's the best way. And just, you know, follow me if you're interested and send me a DM. I'll, I'll send you info. Fantastic. I'll tell you, San Diego, between you and Weck and Michelle Dalcourt, you guys, San Diego is a place to be, man. San Diego is. You got Alex Canellis is down there. Yeah, down and, you know, there Paul too. Check, yeah. OG, Paul check, yeah, check. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the weather. 
Most definitely. Well, thank you for coming on, brother. Appreciate thank catching up with you, man. Really Always love you. chatting with you, man. You too, guys. Love what you do. Grateful for the opportunity to speak with you guys. Thanks for everyone that took the time to, to listen. Sounds good. And I hope we can get together in person soon. Hopefully. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So uh, next time we're down in San Diego, we'll definitely make sure we get in touch with you and uh, hang out, at least grab a cup of coffee, talk some shop. Absolutely. Be awesome. a pleasure as always, brothers. Thank you. All right, Steve. And uh, to Thank all the listeners Neil. out there. Yep. It's, oh. Neil, you haven't, you look the same. <laughs> Neil doesn't age. It's the Asian thing. He's probably like, a, <laughs> there's probably a filter or something on, this, on the Zoom thing, man. <laughs> awesome. Thank you to all the listeners out there. And until next episode, be good to Thank each other. Thank you, guys.